You are listening to the Farm to Fork podcast, the show that was created for food manufacturers. Each week, we'll investigate into the food industry and dive a little bit deeper with the latest leaders in technology and innovation. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Andy. And we're from Carlisle Technology. Today's guest is Wayne McIntyre from Relocalize. Relocalize isn't just another company. It's a movement, a mission, and a vision for a more sustainable and interconnected world. Relocalize understands that the future depends on how we manage our resources, collaborate, and build resilient communities. At the heart of Relocalize is the commitment to strengthening local economies, reducing our environmental footprint, and fostering community resilience. Wayne, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization you're representing today? Absolutely, Joe. Thanks for uh, for having me here. And so I'm the CEO of a technology startup that's on a mission to both decarbonize and hyper-localize packaged food and beverage manufacturing. And, you know, we're going to talk, get more into it later, but you know, the way we do this is with fully autonomous micro factories. That's great. Can we just kind of dive into, I mean, you guys hyper-localize uh, manufacturing, but can we just step back for a second and look at, you know, where did central manufacturing come from in the first place? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, when you think about traditional centralized manufacturing, it makes a ton of sense, right? You know, you've got economies of scale, you know, capital becomes more efficient when you pull it together. People are more efficient. This has kind of been the dogma for, well, since the industrial revolution, essentially. And this approach to making things really was founded on a few fundamental assumptions. The assumptions were that one, resources are unlimited. Two, cheap labor is unlimited. You know, three, cheap money is available. And of course, there's no cost to externalities such as environmental pollution, waste, or CO2 emissions. Yeah. So I think we've seen that you know, a lot of those things, you know, resources aren't unlimited. Funds, you know, depending on where the economy is, can be a little bit tricky to get. And so it makes sense that, you know, maybe we need to relook at manufacturing and say, is there a better way to do this, right? Absolutely. And I think this is really, you know, we came to this project, you know, I think with an open mind and, and challenging that dogma that central is always better. And I think we're really at a, at a special time in history and in a technology where you know, it is becoming possible because the cost of technology are coming down, advances in technology are moving so quickly. And of course, you know, labor shortages, supply chain risks, and all those other things have really changed the landscape for manufacturing, in particular for food. So just kind of pivoting back a little bit. So why was central manufacturing needed? And are you starting to see a strong shift away from central manufacturing in today's world? Well, I mean, I think a strong shift away, I, I think it's hard to change dogma, right? And I think we're really at the earliest stages there. There's definitely demand for consumers for more sustainable products. Every survey you read talks about how this is a growing trend, in particular with the younger generation. At the same time, you know, more local products, unique products, differentiated products, you know, they're really, there's strong demand for those as well. So I'd say, yes, there's more demand for local. But when it comes to manufacturing, I'm not sure that manufacturing side of the food industry is moving as quickly as demand is shifting. And that's because, you know, we've got a lot of capital and a lot of experience and a lot of, of infrastructure in place that is complex, is expensive, but it's already there. And so change is hard, right? What sort of demand do you see that's trying to push people or the manufacturing industry towards more of a local model? 
So I think right now, where we've seen quite a lot of, I think, investment and momentum has been in vertical farming, right? And so, you know, I think for a couple of years now, we've had a ton of you know, billions of dollars of venture capital investment have flowed into vertical farming. And I think for good reason. When you look at food, food is the largest source of global greenhouse gas emissions. And if, you know, if you're going to make an impact somewhere, it should be there as a result. The flip side of that, though, is while we had this sort of, I think, you know, kind of hype and excitement around vertical farming, what we've seen in more recent times is that many of those projects are no longer running and companies have even gone under. And the reason for that is while they can produce hyper-locally and decentralized production, the challenge is how can you do that in a way that's you know, sustainable from an economic perspective and cost perspective? That's what's holding things back. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so on that note, how does relocalize this model allow manufacturers to you know, have their cake and eat it too, as the old adage goes? I come from a background of technology and I've worked you know, across I know I've studied molecular biology, business and law. I've worked in a whole bunch of different roles from corporate development to running software companies to working to, with a company uh, using nanotechnology to treat cancer. And, you know, I think as a result, I'm kind of a generalist and I come to things with a really open mind. And, and so I first started by looking at the vertical farming industry and, you know, I was playing with business models, trying to design business models and as well run financial models on vertical farming to trying to find a place where, hey, we can really make this work. And, you know, I worked at this literally for years. And it was not until I bumped into an inventor who had actually invented a better mousetrap for all things making packaged ice, where I started taking a good hard look at products made of water, like beverages and packaged ice, and understanding the economics of those businesses. And that's where suddenly you know, a light bulb went off in my head, where I realized, okay, look, here's a place where we can actually do what, what I've really wanted to do for years, which is have a meaningful impact from a decarbonization perspective. So really transform an industry, but at the same time, do it in a way that it's more cost effective. And so that's really how I got there, I guess, and how we realized, okay, you know what? It is possible to actually think differently in decentralized manufacturing. Do you think that manufacturing kind of had to wait for technologies like automation and software to catch up in order to be able to kind of do the model that you're talking about? Andy, you're spot on, right? I mean, if I'd looked at this 10 years ago, this wouldn't have been possible, right? Because in order for you to be successful with a decentralized production model, one, you have to you know, have a product that essentially has a simple input supply chain. So what do I mean by simple input supply chain? What that means is if you're solving, say, a distribution problem by putting a production right at distribution centers, hyper-locally placing production in a local community, that makes the distribution side of things much more efficient. You don't need all those trucks. There's not all the food miles. You're reducing costs in some ways. But if you're creating a really complex input supply chain, I mean, you have to feed those microfactories too. Well, now you've you know, solved one part of the problem and created another. So one, you need, you, know, you need to have a, a product that is a relatively simple input supply chain. And then combined with that, you need to be able to work without a whole lot of people in the field. You need to be able to still bring together people in one place so you get the scale benefits of having people in one place. And the way you do that is technology, right? And so one, it's automation in the factories. So our, at Relocalize, our factories are actually 100% autonomous. And you can bring people together in two ways. You can actually have a command and control center in Montreal, which is, is what we're building right now. But you can also bring people together through technology. So even though they're in different places, you know, depending on the role, they're able to perform, you know, 
like we all did during COVID remotely and still do their jobs and do it well. Absolutely. No, for sure. So now getting into the meat of it. So can you explain the concept of micromanufacturing and what industries do you typically see micromanufacturing operating in? So absolutely. So for us, micromanufacturing means you're producing at a micro-industrial scale. For us, that means you're producing enough product, whatever that product your micro factory is making, for about 100 to 200 stores. And so that's the number of stores that are served by a single distribution center. And so that micro factory is the same thing as a full-scale factory. It does all the packaging. It does package forming. It does food safety. It, it actually makes the product. It does everything a full-scale factory does. It just does it in a smaller footprint. But then you're actually taking that factory to the next level as well, because now you're asking that factory to work essentially without any human beings in the process on site. And so that means robotics, that means AI, that means using all those technologies that, that, that we hear so much about today that are available, are effective, and actually cost a lot less than they used to. So that's how you make a, that's really the difference between a traditional factory and a micro factory. And I think when you and I were talking earlier, we, we talked a little bit about how that micro factory that might be out, you know, in a plant's parking lot or somewhere else is actually its own plant in itself. Like it might have its own identification number, its own uh, uh, inspection agency looking at it. Like it's, it's fully its own fa factory outside of the four walls of the main factory. Is that right? We're a seed stage startup, so we're excited. We have the world's first autonomous micro factory down in Jacksonville, Florida right now making packaged ice. And, you know, from the FDA's perspective, uh, from food regulators' perspective, from everyone's perspective, it literally is a standalone factory. It just happens to be a lot smaller than a traditional factory. And the big difference is, you know, for that retail partner and others is, you know, we would have one of those factories at each and every one of their distribution centers. And as a result, all the middle mile transportation, all the middle mile costs, all the middle mile carbon basically goes away because you're producing right at the point of distribution or fulfillment. So speaking about that, um, specifically with relocalized, so why did you make the decision to start with ICE in your concept of micromanufacturing and becoming more hyper-local? Good question. And ultimately, when you're trying to enter a new market and you're a startup, you need to find a place where your customer is ready, right? And you need to ideally pick a place where the competition is relatively weak and where ideally the product is something that, you know, people don't really care that much about. And so when we looked at packaged ice, we saw a place where, wow, here's a spot where there's availability issues, there's been supply issues. And I don't know where you, Joe and Andy are, but you know, many people across North America went to their local convenience stores or grocery stores to buy ice over the last couple of years and found that there wasn't any in the stores. And so one there, you know, there was a really, there's an acute challenge with availability for retailers. But the other part is the industry is dominated by geographic monopolists. And it's the nature of a monopoly to overcharge your customers, to maximize value for the monopoly, and then ultimately sometimes to take your customers for granted. And so, you know, by picking the packaged ice space, we've picked a place where retailers are really ready. You know, they're ready for a change, they're open to a change, and frankly, the existing players in the market don't have the power of like a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi or a major packaged food brand. So, it's a place where we can go in fast, we can transform an entire category, and as a startup, you know, our goal is is to reach a, a billion dollars of revenues as quickly as possible. Package Ice is the place where we believe we can do that fastest before we start looking at other industries. Would you guys focus like your ice manufacturing for like 
production plants or is it more focused on like restaurant chains or places that would have like an immediate use for ice and drinks or other things like that? So we really partner with food retailers and we're producing packaged food. You know, there are a couple of different industries in ice. There's bulk ice, there's ice machines. And really that's not where we're focusing. We're really focused on the packaged food product. Ice, believe it or not, when it's packaged is a food and it's subject to all the regulatory standards. And when you package it, you face a whole lot of manufacturing challenges that you don't when you're just making it. And I'm sure some of you have experienced really cheap bad ice before where it you know, sticks together in a bag and you're smashing it on the pavement to try to break it up, right? We've all been there. And you know, when you use a, a high quality packaged ice product doesn't do that. And you know, it's much more, I guess, complex and higher margin product than, you know, ice from a machine or, or for, a, say, a, a fishery or other bulk ice uh, applications. Oh, that's cool. And I definitely believe the model of micromanufacturing is absolutely disrupting the industry, as you said, taking over those monopolized areas. And with that in mind, so how can organizations start to think about adopting a micromanufacturing model? So, I mean, one... You have to pick the right, you know, if you're a multi-product organization or, or you're a new organization looking for a market to enter, I think, again, comes back to that simple input supply chain. So when you think about you know, packaged ice or beverages, what goes into making these things? It goes, you know, it's water, it's energy, and it's technology and packaging, of course, which, you know, as an impact company is always uh, something that we're trying to improve on as well. It's an important source of waste. But yeah, these are the things you need. And so, you know, any product where, whether it's dry or wet, it's made relatively simply is a place where I think in micromanufacturing works today. And in the future, where labor continues to be constrained, where perhaps, you know, companies are being asked to pay for the externalities and the damage they're doing to the environment, suddenly, you know, more products will become, it'll be possible to make more products using a micromanufacturing model. So with micromanufacturing, you said one of the key components of that is just this hyper-local production perspective. So it's keeping everything really local and as local as possible, so much so that you have another manufacturing plant in your own parking lot if you're a food you know, retailer or something. So can you just explain a little bit more like deconstruct, what does it mean to be hyper-local? Local is a word that is thrown around a lot in food, right? And for some people, it means regional. For some people, it means you know, at your store, some people it means in your, your, your neighborhood. It means a lot of things to different people. So what does it mean for us? Well, hyper-local for us means you are right at the point of distribution or fulfillment. So our micro factories park at a distribution center and they serve all the local stores that are served by that distribution center. And we think this is really important because you know, in order to be able to throw robots and AI and all this technology at a problem, you need a certain minimum amount of volume, a certain minimum amount of throughput to generate the economics necessary to make that happen. And so when you're serving, say, 100 or 200 or 150 stores, you know, those economics start to work. If you're serving one store, that becomes a challenge. And this is where we saw, you know, some vertical farming technology companies uh, such as Infarm start to struggle because how do you make the economics work when you need to, you know, grow product each in each and every store? So for us, hyper-local really means you're, you're in a greater metropolitan community, you're at a distribution center, and by being there, you're integrated into the local community distribution and consumption of food, and you're cutting out all that middle mile and regional stuff that happens with trucks. So wait, I think that's perfect in the perspective of, you know, hyper-local. I think that was a great explanation for the viewers in, in order to, you know, kind of get a bite-sized version of that. So in regards to hyper-local, does this shorten the supply chain or effectively eliminate it altogether? 
So it doesn't eliminate supply chain in the fact that you still have to put that product into the hands of a customer or on a store shelf. But what it does is it gets rid of the upstream supply chain of distribution. And so if you can make a product right on site, all of the steps that happen ahead of time, all the, all the loading and unloading of trucks, all the dwelling of trucks, all the warehousing, all of those supply chain steps, they actually go away. And in some cases, it can actually be you know, half of all of the supply chain steps are gone. And when those steps go away, it's not just the steps, it's also the, the risk, it's also the cost and the time. And so you know, for us, what we do is we remove those steps by producing right on the spot. And we're also producing on demand. So that means there's no warehousing for that retailer either. You're really transforming that supply chain, not just making one step or one part of it more efficient. What has the reception been as you've kind of talked this concept through with either retailers or other maybe competing companies that would make ice in the industry? Or what's kind of the reception been for this? So the reception from retailers has been amazing, right? Because essentially we're giving them control of supply. They have their own dedicated micro factory at each one of their DCs. It's making product just for them. So it makes product much more available. It simplifies their operations. We're not asking them to change much. They just unload our micro factory like you would a truck. So they get all the benefits of that automation, on-demand production, all the sustainability benefits, but it doesn't change how they operate. So food retailers, the response has been really overwhelming, in particular around packaged ice, because frankly, they're, you know, it's an opportunity that doesn't come at a cost to them at all. Now, when we look at, you know, I think other products, I think they're excited about that too. Now we're early days on that for, as a company, we're laser focused on packaged ice, but I think any of the products where, in particular, own brand products, where they have the opportunity to, to take control of their supply chain, they're going to be pretty excited to do that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I mean, since they're receiving it so well, you know, how can organizations evaluate their supply chain to see where they can make these changes? Where can they squeeze in kind of this hyper-local focus into their production processes? Absolutely. So let me maybe start with companies where I think it's hard to do. Right. So there are a couple of great technology companies out there that I really like. One of them is a company we all know very well, which is Tesla. Right. And so they're Tesla Semi. And you know, they're not changing the supply chain, but they're fixing one of the biggest problems in the transportation step by electrifying it. And I think that's really important because not all products will be able to be micromanufactured. So, you know, I think for some organizations, you'll look and be like, you know, we can't change, but maybe we could electrify. For other organizations, I'm a big fan of Plenty. Plenty is a leading vertical farming and automation company, and they're doing some really amazing things with regional production. I mean, they just broke ground in August on a $300 million campus in Virginia, and they're going to be the world's largest indoor vertical farming facility there. And they'll be uh, making with Driscoll's strawberries. And, you know, that's exciting because now your strawberries don't have to come from California. They can come from a closer place. So I think, you know, those kinds of innovations are still exciting. But for me, still not exciting enough because ultimately you're making it better. You're reducing food miles. You're electrifying steps where you have no other choice. But what I, what I would really hope is that organizations don't look to just improve those steps. They actually look at the whole system and where possible, basically say, you know what, I just want to make those steps go away completely the way we've done. And I think the way a manufacturer can do that, or the way a retailer, even if they want to move upstream in the value chain, can do that is to really take a good hard look and say, okay, does, is this product expensive to ship? You know, is it high volume or is it heavy? 
know, is this product simple enough that it doesn't need a complex supply chain, input supply chain? So, it, you know, it's something that's well-suited, like a beverage or something that's a blended powder, something of that sort. So relatively simple input supply chain. And then I think look out there to find out if there's a good technology partner, like a Relocalize or another uh, technology partner who can actually help them take that vision and then turn it into a reality at their distribution centers and fulfillment centers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's definitely, you know, that kind of recipe or, you know, infrastructure and framework to start evaluating, you know, how do we do successful hyper local production? And how do I get my mind wrapped around how to take my organization into that, you know, kind of lane? But speaking to a little bit of that, so what are some of the pitfalls that can be made aware, you know, to organizations when they're attempting to implement hyper local production? There definitely are some things to watch out for. I mean, we're the first mover in this space, so and I think we've had some experience. Um, and one, you know, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, we've had one really large dry goods CPG company reach out to us and kind of, you know, I think reach out for us for our experience. And as part of that process, they communicated their approach to micro manufacturing and the way they were thinking about it. And the way often people think about, you know, hyperlocal manufacturing is they think you need to have the inputs, the manufacturing, and the customers all in one place. And I mean, this is, it's so limiting if you try to do that, because let's assume for a minute we're talking about a dairy alternative milk, you know, like uh, let's say a soy milk that's made from a powdered soybean. If you need to have the soybeans, the soybean processing, the soy milk production facility and the customers all in one place, there aren't too many places where you'll be able to bring all of those factors together in one place. So I'd say the first watch out would be don't try to do too much, right? Don't try to do everything hyperlocal because, you know, then basically that means people will not have access to products like soy milk if they don't live near soybeans. And often that's how people are approaching it, looking for perfection where everything happens in one place. And it's a big mistake because if you look at it that way, you're never going to find a practical solution that works for the mass market. You know, don't try to hyperlocalize everything. I think you need to hyperlocalize production. I think that's key. I think there are also opportunities to say, you know what, maybe my production isn't going to be the production of the final packaged good at the end, but maybe my production could be actually, if we're going to use that soy example again, a micro factory that actually processes the soybeans hyperlocally. Because I think, you know, when we talk about micro manufacturing, there's an opportunity in micro production. The more we can bring the tools of production of powders, production of fruit concentrates for shelf-stable beverages, the more we can bring together, you know, micro-manufacture the the end product. Each one of these little production facilities will have a meaningful impact on one part of that supply chain until at the end, maybe we're left with only micro-factories one day. That would be my dream. Ultimately, I think the challenge would be Make sure you're starting with a blank sheet of paper and challenge yourself to which part of maybe that process or value chain is best suited to micromanufacturing. So you're saying like if you look at it as like a big chain and every step in the process would be a link, instead of trying to accomplish the entire chain in this local micromanufacturing model, you'd say just take little pieces of it. And there might be multiple processes or multiple places that focus on that local aspect or that micromanufacturing aspect. But then, you know, you might have like for the soybean example, you know, where you were saying you would maybe where you're growing the soybeans, you're manufacturing the powder. And that's one micro level. And then they're shipping it somewhere else. And then they're doing that next step or whatever. So you're kind of breaking it off into multiple points. Is that right? 
Exactly, right? You know, relocalized might be responsible in that world for perhaps blending the the powder with water, uh, packaging it and, you know, putting it on uh, put, putting it on an electrified vehicle to go directly to the customer uh, for delivery, but we don't need to make the powder. Somebody else could be doing that in their own micro factory uh, close to the soybean farms, right? Yeah, because I think you risk overcomplicating it almost or even just discouraging yourself if you hit road bumps that you can't seem to figure out how to get over by saying we have to do the entire thing in one area, like you were saying, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, some initiatives that have been out there so far have really taken that approach. And maybe one last watch out just to answer your question fully would be, I think you really have to be willing to cannibalize yourself if you're a big company, right? And that's always a difficult thing, right? When an industry is at risk of being disrupted, there's a tendency to not want to disrupt yourself because you've got a great business, you've invested in a lot of capital. And that's why often smaller companies end up beating the big companies in these markets that are being disrupted because the incumbents are not willing to disrupt themselves. They're not willing to cannibalize their own sale. So I think, you know, this is an opportunity for, I think if companies are smart, they'll create a skunk works or they'll create a a group of entrepreneurs and they'll try to disrupt themselves rather than letting companies like Relocalize come and disrupt their business. So if you're thinking about it and you're a large company, I think you have to build that little side business skunk works or group of innovators and challenge them to actually to think differently and even disrupt your own business because it's better to disrupt yourself than have somebody else do it to you, right? So Wayne, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, kind of transition topics. Earlier, you mentioned about the environmental impact of micromanufacturing. And, you know, as touted as one of the pillar goals of Relocalize, again, is creating sustainable economies and as well furthering sustainability goals for the future. So can you explain what the impact of micromanufacturing is on the environment? Absolutely. So for Relocalize, we're an impact first company. You know, we're really, we're created to get this, get this impact. And the way we think about impact is we don't just want to say decarbonize and, you know, reduce carbon. We also got to have to make sure we're reducing costs at the same time, because in order to really have a mass impact, you not only do you have to say reduce carbon of your product, but you have to allow the mass market, regular people, the whole community to buy that product. And that means it has to be affordable. So for us, you know, that's the key to being successful when you want to have an environmental impact is, you know, reduce cost and have an environmental benefit. And the way we have, a, I think the first immediate benefit we have ultimately is getting rid of those trucks, right? Whether you're local, regional, or national scale producer, every time you put food on a truck, you know, you are one, doing that at a great cost. And also you're burning carbon in the process, carbon from the cold chain, carbon from the the motor running that engine, or carbon even from the energy that's often fed into an electrified vehicle even. These are all sources of greenhouse gases. And so by being right at that point of distribution or fulfillment, really making it a one-step journey for food, that whole middle mile and all those trucks go away. And that's really how we're making an immediate impact for sustainability. There's also a long-term impact, which I could talk about as well, if you're interested there as well. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. If we talk about a long-term impact, I mean, so the trucks, you know, getting the, the trucks off the road is really what we're doing right now. But once you start building hyper-local manufacturing infrastructure, it also starts to create, I think, a positive a positive impact locally where, okay, now that system that's deployed locally is also interacting with, say, the local recycling processes. Or it enables things like, for example, circularity of packaging. 
Because if your production is hyper-local and the packaging material being used is something that can be 100% recycled locally because each individual city, municipality, or town has different materials they're able to handle. And most of it's unfortunately ending up in landfills. So if you can really design yourself to be hyper-local and that whole system is working together, suddenly you're also getting circularity. And this is where, you know, for example, if there was a reusable container for whatever product a producer was making, if it's being produced locally, it's being consumed locally, you know, getting that reusable package back to the manufacturing facility is a heck of a lot easier because often those trucks actually you know, the distribution vehicles are returning to the distribution center empty. So now they could even be coming, say, with reusable packaging. So I think, you know, going hyper-local has immediate benefits, but also it has transformative systemic changes, I think, in particular around circularity of packaging. I think too, like a few years ago, there was a really big green initiative going on. And, you know, you went to grocery stores and there were so many things in the grocery stores that were like green this or green that. And part of the problem with that was that it made things really expensive that were considered green. So how can you do this in a way that, and maybe the circularity piece is part of that key, but how do you do this in a way that it's scalable, doesn't turn people away by like the green initiative kind of, you know, increasing prices and and making people wary like that, but you can do it in a scalable way that makes the most impact, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're spot on, Andy, right? Because if you're making a product that is green, but is three times as expensive, one, you're limiting the amount of impact you can have because, of course, only people who can afford to pay three times as much can buy that sustainable product. So it's not a product that is available to everybody. I think that's off-putting to many people. But the other side of it is it also really lessens the impact you can have because let's say your lettuce, if your lettuce is you know, I'm not going to name any brand, any companies, but there's one of these, you know, hyperlocal lettuces that's 338% more expensive than conventional lettuce. You know what? If you really want to change the world, you can't just change the world for people who have uh, enough money to afford that lettuce. You need to do it for everybody. I think that's one of the big mistakes, as you're pointing out, Andy, that so many of these green initiatives cost extra. And in some cases, even they're not really that green, right? There's also that sort of greenwashing side of things that I think really turns people off as well. So, you know, if you have a package return, you know, if a store takes a package back, but now that package has to be shipped across the country or even to another country to be recycled, that's not really sustainable. That's, you know, know, they're doing their best, I guess, and they're working hard, but, you know, it's not really having impact. And I think if we're going to be making, being sustainable and having people jump on board a movement, it better be real. And I think that here at Relocalize, that's our goal as always. One, make sure there's no greenwashing in anything we do. We're 100% transparent. And when we make a product, let's pick the products where we can have the economics and the sustainability together so that we can actually bring that product to everybody, not just the people who can afford to pay a premium. Absolutely. No, removing barriers to entry is absolutely going to be the way that you have, you know, homogenous consent um, and, you know, just kind of widespread consensus amongst, you know, a population and industry and just the ability to start looking towards these sustainability goals. I couldn't agree more. So kind of looking into the future now. So Wayne, where do you see Relocalize going into the future? So right now we're really laser focused on packaged ice. Most people don't realize that it's actually a multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, when you're a startup or, or well, you know what, when you, at any size of company, focus is important, right? Most of strategy is not about choosing what you're going to do or where you're going to go. It's about what you're going to say no to. And so right now we're saying no to everything other than packaged ice while we really uh, get up and running and start scaling. Once we're, you know, at a point where we're starting to see that scale happening, we do see 
a number of other areas where relocalized can enter relatively quickly. Our technology is really built as a platform. So there's the, you know, there's the ice production portion of what a, a microfactory does, but much of the other portions, the the packaging systems, the food safety. I mean, we're talking about an industrial internet of things technology as well. These are There are thousands of these factories that have to work together full of robots and AI and predictive analytics and all kinds of you know interesting technologies. And all of these are really not ICE-specific, product-specific. So we'll focus on ICE, we'll develop this as a platform, and then the next step for us is into any product really that's made primarily of water because the model can work for a hyper-local beverage as well as it can work for ice. It can work as, you know, for a hyper-local shelf-stable juice. It can work for a whole a bunch of products that are made of water. And it could also work actually for uh, certain types of dry goods as well, where shipping is expensive. So really the sky's the limit as long as we have a simple input supply chain is the way we look at it. Oh, that's awesome. What would you have our call to action for our audience be? Like, what do you want to see them take away from this or run away with after listening to this? Ultimately, again, I've said it earlier, we're an impact-driven company. What we're really hoping to do is prove in ICE and then beyond that it is possible to be sustainable and deliver good economics to a retailer and that you can scale impact and you can scale a business uh, successfully. What we hope is that people will look at our model, they'll see what we're doing. You know, Relocalize will not be able to solve every problem in every industry. We'll be staying focused on a handful of industries just because that's just the nature of what's possible. We need others to actually think, look at what we're doing, see the possibilities, and actually kind of join this movement. We would really like to see you know, hyper-local packaged food manufacturing become a movement. And we'd be happy to support any organization that wants to join that revolution because ultimately it will take a whole lot of startups and medium-sized and small businesses and large businesses to really have an impact on the fact that impact on the global footprint of carbon for our food industry, right? Ultimately, it will take small companies, small, medium-sized enterprises, startups, and big companies to actually take carbon emissions of the food industry down to a level where we can have an impact on climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And just for our audience's benefit, do you have any sort of like additional content, blogs, white papers, or any just sort of, you know, additional information on your website that we can direct our listeners to, to learn a little bit more about micromanufacturing, hyperlocal, and then, you know, really the path and goal that Relocalize set out? Absolutely. Like I'd invite, I think first and foremost, people to come to our website. We have some material there already. It's relocalize.com. And we'd invite people to come to our website and we will continue uh, to publish information there that hopefully will be of interest to others. As we progress and scale, we uh, we will be uh, out there obviously doing webinars and seminars and we'll be at the industry events. And uh, you know we'd invite people to connect with us there as well. One group we're a part of, and, and I think I'd encourage others to join it as well, is the Canadian Food Innovation Network. They've been great champions for us. They provide funding to organizations. They also provide you know, platforms for people to connect with others in the food industry. I think, you know, joining organizations like that, which Relocalize has done, has also been very helpful. And we would, would be happy to, to meet some of you out there at these events as well. I think that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed learning about Relocalize and just seeing the vision towards this movement of, you know, hyper micromanufacturing, hyper local. So I think that's amazing. Absolutely. We very much appreciate your time, Wayne. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And to all of our listeners, I encourage you strongly to go over to the Relocalize website, get plugged in, get informed, and see how Relocalize is paving the way in the food industry. So Wayne, thank you again for your time. Very much appreciate it. 
Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Andy. It really was uh, the pleasure was all mine.